0: I'm reminded of a funder convening of LGBT movement leaders that I participated in at what I guess we would call the turn of the century. The funder had asked all of us to create PowerPoint decks outlining our strategic directions over the next three years, along with a sense of the roadmap we had to get there. But gosh darn it, many leaders were unwilling to have their strategy shared with others. The goal had been for the funder to synthesize these plans and for us to have a robust conversation about whether we were all rowing in the same direction and if each organization's plan was a smart part of a greater whole. We didn't find out. Would someone steal my good ideas? Would this be an opportunity for a more well-funded organization to stomp all over my mission? I remember leaving that meeting thinking that donors, at the $25 level, the $25,000 level, would have been pretty disappointed. What stands in the way of organizations working together? It was actually the recent uh, topic at the conference I keynoted, the Center for Nonprofit Excellence in Colorado Springs. I ran this breakout center. Uh, I ran out. I ran this breakout session, and we actually laughed when the words collaboration and hostility ap- appeared next to each other on my flip chart. I believe it takes a village to be an effective nonprofit leader, and the program collaboration and a real sense of trust between and among colleagues in a community or within a sector are critical elements of that village building. Today, I'll introduce you to someone who has spent her professional career giving away money. Pretty awesome, right? I thought she would know a thing or two about effective collaborations, what they look like, the recipe for success, and the potential pitfalls. She's also an expert on funding collaboratives, another way in which the nonprofit sector can work together. Lastly, she now seems like a woman with a new mission. How to engage the remarkable number of folks who, since Election Day, are hungry to get out of the stands and onto the field. For the next half hour, let's pretend the nonprofit sector is a big sandbox and we're all toddlers. It's time to learn the power of playing nicely together. Welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. Not enough money. Too many cooks and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it. And she is here to help. As director of Carnegie Corporation's U.S. Democracy Program, Jerry Mannion brings a wealth of experience about the role of philanthropy in challenging, improving, and deepening the civic dialogue. She has directed this division since 1998 after staffing the Corporation's Program of Special Projects for almost 10 years. Wow, that's a long tenure. Uh, Active in a whole bunch of professional organizations that work to advance and strengthen the philanthropic and nonprofit world, Mannion is a former co-chair of the Board of Grantmakers Concerned with Immigrants and Refugees. In 2009, together with a colleague, she received a fantastic award for funding for founding something called the four freedoms fund which is a funder collaborative and in 2010 she was named as the non one of the nonprofit sector's top 50 leaders mannion holds a b.a in english and a master's in political science both from my own personal alma mater fordham university jerry i'm delighted to have you with us especially since we both have diplomas from that jesuit oasis in the middle of the bronx
1: Oh, thanks, Joan. I appreciate it. And so in the Bronx is where I learned to be a good collaborator, because if you didn't have good alliances, you wouldn't necessarily do well in the Bronx, uh, at least at that time.
0: And I know that I I know from your personal bio that um, not only did you go to school, you went to (laughs) you went to the school, you went to school in the Bronx on ever so many levels. That's where actually you were pretty much raised, right?
1: Yeah, so my parents were actually immigrants from um, Ireland, and um, both my sister and I were born in London, so we're all naturalized citizens, and my parents emigrated like a lot of folks did in, from the old country, uh, settled in the Bronx, and uh, that's where I was raised. Um, and I feel that it's one of the reasons that I've actually done as well. It was a great grounding in community, in, uh, in engagement, in uh, wonderful education at our shared alma mater. Uh, I would give, urge anyone to get a Jesuit education. It sets you up for life. I feel like it was a really a first rate opportunity. Um, I'm a working class kid from the Bronx, and I think that's also um, helped me become very successful in both philanthropy and in alliance building.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So, a liberal arts major at a Jesuit institution becomes a lifer foundation exec. Can you tell me how you found your way into the foundation world? And I'm and I'm quite confident that there must have been some good philosophical conversation with one of those fabulous Fordham Jesuits over a glass of wine that influenced it. Well, there was a lot of
1: Jesuits in my background and they often had wine or something else, frankly, <laughs> um, going there, so that is not a, that, was, that is not untrue. Um, but I had a kind of unusual and probably very strange entry. So because my parents, um, you know, for immigrants and had not gone to college, um, my father had died early. I actually, uh, the Good Sisters of the Dominicans in the Aquinas High School actually tracked me to get a job as a secretary, and then actually got me a partial scholarship with something called Catherine Gibbs. Yes, yeah, sure. Was a very professional secretarial school. Do you know steno? It, Did you learn steno? I learned steno. I knew how to do pit, uh Pittman. Math, um, Greg, Pittman, and they actually taught you things like it was right at the end of the old Mad Men era, and you know where they had just stopped wearing gloves to uh, to the office, and <laughs> there was a big piece about um, how you actually they taught you things like how to light a cigarette, you know um, how to get coffee. It was definitely a well-rounded education, um, but what it also was was it actually allowed me to become very. Um, I was a really good. I was a really good secretary. I, mm-hmm. you know, I typed 110 words a minute. I did steno, and then um, I so I had uh, went out for my job interviews at 19 years old. Had two job offers for the exact same amount of money per year, uh, per week, 150 dollars. I still remember it. <laughs> and one was one was working for six engineers at Mobile Oil, and the other was to be a secretary at the Rockefeller Foundation. Wow. And so I had never. Um, the only Rockefellers I knew at that point were like Nelson Rockefeller, who had been the governor my entire time. And I think in the back of my mind, I thought I'd meet a Rockefeller. And therefore, uh, I decided that would be my pathway. And so I started, I, I, as I said, at uh, almost 19 years old, uh, working in the social sciences program for this fantastic woman who was um, actually had come over from England after World War II, had actually set up the Office of Strategic Service, OSF, it, in uh, the u.s which is our version of the cia she could read upside down pat harris she taught me how to do that Um, she taught me how to be incredibly efficient and a really good uh, writer and editor and so i started um, working and basically in their field offices um, she smoked like a chimney, that was the only thing that was hard, so uh, taking Steno in those days, for those who don't remember it, in closed offices with someone smoking in your face all day was not exactly what I thought was going to be my pathway, mm-hmm. but everybody at, this, uh, at the uh, office who were assist- for secretaries were all college graduates. And so I was kind of chagrined to learn that I was like the only one hired with no college. And one of my friends, who wanted somebody who became a very close friend, first thing she said was, you didn't go to college? How did you get this job? And I was like, oh, my God. I'm I'm like, how did I, how did I get this job? <laughs> and so um, uh, Rockefeller Foundation had a fantastic tuition reimbursement program. And they paid for my college. I went to college at night in Fordham, got my degree um, in four years, um, and they uh, paid all the uh, pay, I paid the expenses out as long as you got good grades, you got reimbursed. And uh, I took a year off after that, and they also paid for my master's. So uh, I always say I'm sort of a product of the Rockefeller, uh, Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, and Carnegie Corporation. I should have like a sign outside my door, uh, <laughs> brought brought to you by the funding of. <laughs> but um, but you know it was a terrific experience. Like foundational land, you said in one of your questions about, do I like my job? I, I have, if I'm the 19 years old, no, no, I never have ever had a boring day at work. It's very unusual to believe that, but it's but it is true. Um, my first job was in the social sciences, basically sending in materials to field offices around the world. It's how I learned geography, something you don't get taught much these days. Right. And it was also how I learned you know those good skills of really understanding um also having understanding how to work together i was yeah. the baby at the foundation i was the youngest person there i think i was one of the youngest ever hired and and they treated me that way in many ways with, with the love and support that the youngest child would get in any family
0: yeah I, then, I i, I know that, from this <laughs> i'm the youngest it, of, of four
1: and so, even though I was like everybody around me was doctor this and doctor that, PhDs, huge great careers, and, and had done a lot of work in developing country work, et cetera, and the assistants, then the secretaries were uh, all graduates of places like uh, Wellesley and North North uh, North. Northwestern and um, Smith and these and these were places when in those days before just as the women's movement was getting going, Completely. it was a nice place for you to work until you found a husband was what everybody was sort of told and it was sort of that was the expectation you'd stay there until you got your you you snagged that husband and um, my mother still believes if I taken the job at Mobile. Uh, she would have. I would have found a husband. Uh, She's disappointed that that did not occur in the philanthropic sector, but that's a different story.
0: So, um, so you, um, so you became one of those over time. And, you know, you started taking steno, and you know the listeners just heard your bio. You became what those people were, um, which is really a a, a lovely thing to kind of hear that trajectory so so fast forward to where you are today Jerry and tell me what you really love like I love the the notion that you've never had a boring day at work I bet there are millions of people who wish they could say such a thing so two things you really love about your job and on the flip side two things that that frustrate you
1: well I mean I'm the first i the 1st The first thing is like, uh, and because you mentioned that at Carnegie, when I came to Carnegie uh, after um, being 13 years at Rockefeller, and then I was a consultant for a year, uh, year and a half at Ford. What I Came to Carnegie and I did their special projects, which meant I was able to do a wide range of different issue areas. I'm a generalist, like a lot of people with liberal arts education. So I worked every day from something from conflict resolution or from science, technology, and government to working at voting rights to um, thinking about voting and getting people to turn out to vote. At the same time, we also supported, um, at that time, uh, the nonprofit sector. That's how I learned. I I also have lots of. I have a lot of great colleagues across a wide number of areas. Right. And so it, it allowed me to have, like, every day was something you new, know, when you read proposals and you see something. On the good side, what it did was also I met a lot of fantastic people. You know, we meet people in our job. It's a very privileged position. I can anybody and everybody will respond to my phone call. <laughs> you know, um, everybody and everybody who will come to see me, they give generously of their information of their of their background, and it, and I think the thing that always keeps me feeling optimistic about. What I do and optimistic about our country, about our world, is there's so many fantastic people doing great things every day that most people don't even know about. And and they work across a wide range of issues, and the uh, the and even though I guess the frustrating thing is, is, I can't fund everybody. We have to make difficult choices. I have a limited budget. It's hard to say that when you know you you oversee millions of dollars, but you still have to make very, um, you know, very hard choices between programs. I think the other thing, and this goes to what you wanted uh, to talk about today. I think one of the things that really surprised me and also somewhat frustrated me was how many people did not in the same field often did not know each other right. and didn't even know about each other's work. And that's one of the things. once some person once called me a connector, and I like that about that. I get to connect people who don't know each other, who often are working on similar areas, and I hope that makes their work and their and their ability to do something to get collectively better.
0: I think that 's really a really good point, and I just wanted to say that I feel like not only are we uh, kindred spirits with a uh, diplomas from Fordham University, but I also find that you know between the thousands of people that read my blog and um, and my consulting clients it 's such a privilege to know these people who are doing these amazing things some of them the smallest mightiest little organizations and some of them Mm -hmm. you know some of them large and um and, and not to say that you know large means greater impact by any stretch of the imagination but it's to me it's very inspiring to work with these kinds of folks and I think we're kindred spirits in that regard you know so when I I, you know, I said this when I, when I made the leap from the for-profit sector to becoming an executive director at GLAAD, I was really stunned by the lack of collaboration between and among organizations in my sector. Um, you know, and the, the example I used in the intro was about, honestly, about 20 years ago. Um, and I feel like collaboration is becoming more of a priority, and I wonder if you agree with that and if you think organizations are actually getting better at it.
1: Yeah, I, I actually do. I um, mean, I do think also, I mean, one of the things that I think has changed from when uh, you and I both started out is that technology has allowed us to have a conversation like that and see each other across Skype, where many years, for many years, people couldn't even get to each other. I think thing I think most people forget about it, even finding, even nonprofits that have a relatively uh, healthy budget never have a lot of money for things like um convenings or travel or going to each other's meetings and you know so I think that's something that philanthropy has actually tried to do and spark over the last couple of decades is provide some money for bringing people together i have found most people when they meet each other and are with very rare exceptions want to work together want to feel they are able to be collective first of all you want some you want some collective um, support in difficult times and you want also to have somebody to celebrate when you win and you know the one thing that always annoys me about an, any nonprofit that says they're the only one or the only person doing something, it to me is like a huge red flag. First of all, it's not true usually. And it's not possible for the kind of issues that we all are trying to to deal with in philanthropy, especially the large foundations are trying to do big issues like soft poverty or you know get immigration reform or help preserve voting rights. You know, this is something you can't do on your own. You have to do it collectively with other with other donors, and you have to encourage collaboration across many pieces of the the nonprofit sector.
0: So let's talk about what gets in the way of. Um, We were talking about, I mean, my goodness, so I was dealing with these vast array of nonprofits in Colorado Springs, and we were talking about what gets in the way of collaboration and things like um, clear goals and what does success look like as a result of the uh, collaboration and sort of power dynamics and money and those kinds of things, and... um, do you see those things at play and, 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 and advice for nonprofits that are saying, you know, I know funders want us to collaborate, but boy, I just I just worry that it's just not gonna it's not gonna play out really well
1: hmm well you know I think that first of all philanthropy and foundation people in particular have a lot to contribute to this and a lot to not do and I think part of it is is to set up competition or or frankly Frank or worst case scenario to um, continue either funding groups that are no longer successful or, or doing good work right but also set up a, new organizations to compete with them because they haven't got the guts to say it's time to close down and move on, yes. and I think there's not a lot of collaboration. I think I think we often say this word about there should be more mergers. Like I'm a big some I, people laugh at me sometimes. I'm like there's too many organizations, and I think part of that is true. And I think but I, and I do think that sometimes, on, especially on the, uh, you know, the progressive side, we don't have a lot of heft. Um, and part of it's because God forbid that we'd actually have to agree about that everybody's voice should not be heard yes. equally. Totally. Um, I think people have got to come to uh, to the awareness that you can do more together and that you and there's ways to you know to, for funders to support that. And I'll give you one particular example. I'd love that. A- after the um, Shelby decision came down with uh, the Supreme Court, Basically gutted the Voting Rights Act and especially the pre-clearance requirement, which allows that the Justice Department has to approve, um, you know, changes in voting schemes or, or movement of polling places. Um, you know, bef- it, was, it was in many states that had a, racially, um, a racial history of doing some bad stuff, and they had to be pre before changing it. And you know, after the 13 of uh, the decision came down. There was, um, you know, a lot of money came in initially, but then, frankly, a lot of it then sort of kind of moved away. And so one of the things, there's a lot of fantastic uh, legal defense funds and litigation groups that work on voting rights. So, uh, you know, uh, with... uh, Karen Arasaki, who was a consultant at the time to the State Infrastructure Fund and other donors, they set up a deal where uh, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund would be the uh, convener of probably ten of the best voting rights groups in the country, litigators. And you know it's hard for litigators, especially sometimes, to give up the, you know, um, being in charge. But they have really worked incredibly well. Um, it's like I call them the dream team of litigators. and they realize that they uh, there's so much coverage they have to do so many places geographically they have to be in. They now cut up the turf. They are much more willing to understand where how the funding is di- is dis- basically also divvied up. And I think it's an example of uh, groups really realizing that they had to work collectively together to take on a, a you know a huge
0: issue and what was and how would you articulate the sort of the impact how how would you articulate the they were if you'll excuse the campaign phrase that they were actually stronger together
1: well because i think they they've realized that i mean it's a big country right i mean and they've had to you know they're doing stuff um, relating to the um native uh native americans on in south dakota to african americans in georgia to um People in Alaska, you know, I mean, it's a very hard country to cover on every single thing. And by right. actually figuring out what cases they need to be in together, um, like in North Carolina, potentially, or what cases do they need to be uh, taking on separately or in duos, right? So maybe the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law would actually work collectively with MALDAF in one state, but maybe with Native American Rights Fund in another. So you don't, you figure out where you are complementary. Versus having to be the person who is, you know, uh, the Believe. first, uh, what they call them, the first chair. As the they first say. chair. So, yeah, exactly. I'm not, a lo- I'm not a lawyer, but I pretend to be. But, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: I, yeah I, I tell people I play, I kind of play one on television. Um, yeah. The, um, and in that situation, and then I want to move on, but in that situation, did the funders play a facilitative role in sort of working this through or did the groups meet independently? I mean, they they meet did as both. a group together.
1: I think what happened was like, you know, for, so for example, you know, Carnegie, uh, I don't have a huge staff. There's no way I could have funded 10 voting rights groups separately. Physically, it would have been impossible. But I'm more than willing to actually recommend grant and our and our senior leadership certainly were supportive. Um, and they love the ability to show real partnerships at work. And so, you know, I can make a grant, a, a large grant, to uh, the coalition of these groups together where it's much more difficult to make ten. So for them, they ended up getting money from you know uh, from us that was able to be um, divvied up uh, as appropriate. like so somewhere they're different tiers, they get different funding. Yeah. And then through the state infrastructure fund, they had a staff person uh, who actually helped broker the deal, if you will. Someone they trusted that was willing to you know talk to them about why this was an important collective. Right. and hopefully we'll stay together it has now for several couple, at least three years I believe maybe more and um and the thing is, they also realized that uh, it was a way to attract other funding that would be willing to, like me, or like Carnegie, willing to put something into the collective versus having to decide amongst all the different groups. Sweet. So I think they see it. And they've also gotten much, much more opportunities to work, um, to have also meet together. And that was one of the p- things that was very important in the beginning. They were able to meet in a safe space that they could work out all these details, like who did what to whom.
0: I, I think that's really smart. I, I often tell this story about um, my own experience in the LGBT movement and I was um, sitting with uh, Rosie O'Donnell and um, I, I won't be shy, I was actually trying to secure funding and, um, and Rosie said to me, she said, I don't understand why I have to write checks to all these different LGBT groups. I'd really like to write a check. Can't I just write a check to Gay USA, and then you guys can just <laughs> figure it out? And that's yeah. actually what you're talking about here, right? Is your yeah. <laughs> in this case it isn't Gay USA? It might be Litigation USA or We're Voting Rights USA. Voting Rights USA, exactly. And um, and and you know, we ended up having this really good conversation that she actually you know, given her influence at the time, she really had the ability to potentially drive collaboration with her dollars. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, that's an opportunity and a gift. So we're talking, well, we're, we're talking can with can your, I just say one thing? Oh yeah, sure, oh. sure, sure.
1: Just on the, you can drive, I think driving it is important, but you have to drive it like you can't drive it into like the, into the deep end or into the river. You have to be careful as a funder. And I, I just want to be saying that it was a really careful kind of orchestration. It's like, cause I do see that a lot of foundations, a lot of funders, I should say, sometimes are, um, a little too
0: driven. That's you mean, you well. mean directive about how their funds get yes, spent? Yes. Exactly. Yes. I think that's absolutely true. And I, um, yes, I think you have to actually sort of put the money out there and then, and then allow the people who are really good at what they do be really mm-hmm. good at what they do. Right.
1: Exactly.
0: So we're talking with Jerry Mannion, who's the director of the Carnegie Corporation's U.S. Democracy Program. She's deeply engaged in work that impacts immigration, immigrants um, and has a personal story that embodies the narrative of immigration. Uh, and she is a national voice on the power of funding collaboratives. And um, I wanted to just sort of talk for a minute about this notion of funders working together. And and, um, uh, you know, we see more and more of that. And is that also about relationship building? And like, how's that? How does that work? And how is that complementary to the notion of um, Mm -hmm. having the nonprofits uh, collaborate together?
1: Well, I think you can't ask nonprofits to collaborate if funders don't collaborate. I think that should be one of the mantras that uh, that folks should do. And I think sometimes that's not clear. Um, And I think. Foundations are often, there's so many foundations, there's so many different ones. I I have been incredibly lucky in that because I think I, you know, I worked with a quite a number of different folks across the different foundations. I really believe that uh, you know I could not do the work as well as I do without being in a collaborative. So the fund the Four Freedoms uh, fund was created with by Taryn Nagashi and I, we get the credit, but there was other funders there as well. Um, but and she was at Ford and I was at Carnegie. And it probably wouldn't have happened except that we knew each other well, and we trusted each other. And I think, and I think that's how we've developed the fund from the beginning.
0: But and don't you think, Jerry, that that's actually at the root of any collaboration—is what you knew each other, and that it, trust is actually at the core of this, regardless of where the collaboration exists? No?
1: I totally, totally agree. And I've been in a couple of collaborations that, actually, frankly, I didn't did not work as well um and i think part of it is you know we were um we were dealing this was post um 9 11. uh we had hoped that with uh, george w bush's actually presidency that um he would uh, he was really a major proponent for camp- for uh, federal immigration reform so we had thought we were in this moment we were going to move um on immigration and then of course 9/11 happened and it sort of started a whole you know anti-immigrant movement it gave right. them some more feelings and so and what we've realized that much was not going to happen at the federal level and that we had to think about how would we fund at the state level and taryn had worked in um at ford funding directly in some coalitions at the state level but even for her um you know ford doesn't have a lot of staffing per program area we both were um you know uh had small staffs we both were trying to figure out how to move money to the states without having um a lot of infrastructure our own we would have had to i always say this you know uh, we've decided to put the the fund at neo philanthropy and it's a one of uh, it's a staffed fund it has been from the beginning right and there's no way i could have hired that many people to work at Carnegie, you know because that administratively would have been too much money but allowing me to put money through a fund that then gets, uh, was well-staffed and had uh, you know due diligence, et cetera, that it allowed us to actually now move, and we're now, I think the fund is in 29 states and able to fund uh, across a wide range of areas, including civic engagement, immigrant rights, uh, enforcement reform, communications, and capacity building for the coalitions. And we've done that through uh, excellent staffing really good oversight through neo and also the way the funds uh, the funders have come and gone gone in the in the fund itself so taryn was at ford when she started she now runs unbound she's actually not as engaged but um but comes every once in a while but her staff now comes because they took in a way they came to the fund as uh, took over her spot. Ford Foundation, the people who the person who took over for Taryn joined the fund and found it to be the way they learned about philanthropy and the way they related they got relationships. We also have had people from local small foundations like the Hagedorn Foundation, which is sadly going to uh, end their funding because they're, they're spending down. Right. We had Haas Jr. come in, and yep. from it was a regional fund. We had LGBT donors join because they wanted to be Bill Bridges with the immigrant rights field.
0: Exactly.
1: And, and all of those different contentions, it's actually become a wonderful, collaborative Collegial, you know, training ground and also um, learning ground for all of us who are funding. Uh, sometimes it drives the grantees a little crazy because we do collaborate so closely. And we know all that's going on, <laughs> and and that also is difficult. And the other piece that we wanted to do, and you I think appreciate this coming out of the LGBT community. Often there was a huge split in the people who are doing the work at the national level and the so-called inside D.C. crowd, yep. and then the people in the states. And one of the things we said from the beginning of the Four Freedoms Fund was we wanted to really encourage collaboration from those, those voices in the states with those working at the national level. Smart. And that they had to really listen to each other and talk to each other. And it has been a little rough over the edges, and they often will, especially when there's a major... Um, you know, sort of um, legislation, ba- legislative battle happening or whatever. You know, they always they'll complain that the DC folks are caving, and the DC folks, you know, believe that the you know the people in the states are too, um, t- you know, what's the word, um, too pristine or too waiting for the perfect bill. Yeah. You know, the usual stuff. Yep. But you know, we've we've allowed them to really feel that both the, all their voices work, um, and that they should be uh, working collectively and. And they actually like they like the fact I think that we work collectively.
0: Yeah, I you know it's so interesting listening to you talk, Jerry, because um, I think far too often foundations from the nonprofit side get a little bit of a bad rap, right? You you all are the folks who have all this money and seem to say no more often than you say yes, or there are strings mm-hmm. attached to your yes, or right. you know something, and it's really. Um, it's really wonderful to hear you talk about and it's honestly I feel like it's kind of good PR for the foundation world to to my listeners to say you know, foundations are really smart. They do really smart things. They're smart people who are really trying to figure out the best way and that they have a viewpoint that actually, you know, I think sometimes nonprofits actually, frankly, are a little bit arrogant and they say to themselves, well, you know, you all don't know this stuff. We do. So, you know, just write us a check and let us just do our thing. And, you know, what I'm hearing today, which actually makes me super happy, is that, You know, it does actually take a village and the the smart work that the smart strategic work that you're doing and the smart strategic work that nonprofits that your that your grantees are doing, like the whole really could be greater, can be greater than the sum of its parts. And, you know, I may be a little bit Pollyanna in this regard, but I think it's true.
1: Well, I think the thing is, like you know, by mo- I, you know we've done the fund now since thir- uh, 2003, so we're going into our, like our 14th year, which is really amazing for a collaborative fund. And it's not to say that we've done everything perfectly. I think we have off- also um, had to rethink our our strategies in some ways. We certainly never thought it would take this long to get federal immigration reform over the over the goalpost or whatever the sports term is. I'm never good at that. But I think the um, I think the deal, though, is that we you know i've learned i think the thing is you have to go in with an open mind like i've learned a lot myself like you know i'm a national funder you know i often don't know a lot on the ground you know i i've learned a lot from folks who work regionally or folks who work in other issue areas i think um darren Sanjay, who runs Hagedorn who works at most of their funding goes to long island and therefore seeing what they learn on the ground and bringing it back to me who often is at the 30,000 foot. Level, I think it's only made me a better
0: grant maker. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that that's true. So I have one last question before we close. I, I it, given your work in civic engagement, it just I would be ridiculously remiss not to spend a few minutes talking with you about your sort of observations about. I, I can only just really call it the new world order, and um, you know, I I, I have. I, from my vantage point i don 't feel like I have ever seen our citizenry so hungry to be engaged i don 't think that i 've seen our world so polarized i don 't think i 've seen our world so angry on mm-hmm. both sides of the aisle and um, you know and I talk a lot with clients and and when I do speaking gigs about The sort of the pain of uncertainty and potentially panic on the progressive side comes with this opportunity of this army of people that heretofore have been pretty comfortable, just kind of sitting in the stands eating their popcorn, and Mm -hmm. are now like, "Get me on the field!" And I and I really um, I'm interested in your take on the new world order, and also some final words of advice. For people who are listening largely nonprofit leaders on the paid and the unpaid side, what to do with all of this energy?
1: Well, I think we should basically be you know figuring out how to use it um, you know I think that the I think of anything good that sort of evolved from this last election cycle, and it's not even just the election itself, but the cycle, is that it certainly shows across the board what happens when you sit on the sidelines or when you waste a vote, um, when you vote for Mickey Mouse, which 100,000 people did in, in Florida, um, just because you want to send a statement. I think, I think it's really, frankly, an opportunity right now for Americans across every issue, and frankly across ideology, to really think about being, in, no longer being on the, as you said, on the bystanders, but really participants. Because, you know, even at the best of times, 50, only 50% of the eligible electorate vote. And if you look at these, certainly down the, the pike, if you go down to local elections, you're lucky if, 9% or 10% show up. And yet, these are the people that you bitch about and moan about constantly as, right. as voters, that they're not doing what you want. Well, you know, I think this is a wake-up call for people to actually learn about how government works, learn how what politicians do. Think about how... Um, what it would mean if they actually were involved with their board of education, or yes. they were involved with their local city council? Why, they, if you're in, you know, if you're in a place like Flint where your water's lousy, and where you're or you're in Ferguson where you've seen things happen that really, uh, you know, alarm you about the, you know, the criminal justice system, or frankly, you know, are in uh, a rural area and have felt them left behind or forgotten. I think you have to get your voice heard into this debate. And that means that nonprofits, I think, first of all, I'm a big advocate for what I call integrated voter engagement. And that it shouldn't just be the civic engagement funders that support, you know, uh, nonpartisan voting and voting rights and get out the vote. But all nonprofits that are issue-based should be also thinking about how they engage their um their constituents their um, members etc and why elections matter yeah why their issues matter because we so much leave it to the sidelines i think we also have to figure out how to engage young people um you know there's no civic education like when we were kids we at least would learn about it Mm -hmm. um how bill becomes a law um i learned it by uh, you know from friends you know who taught me because my parents had not been really civically involved, but they taught showed me how I should register and vote. I think we all should be responsible for engaging people in our our social networks in our schools churches fields. This is everybody's responsibility, and we're it's not just about the u s but about the globe
0: yep and i just I just think it is a un, just a unique moment in time when our electorate is actually paying a lot of attention. The other thing the other thing that strikes me as you talk about young people, and then we're gonna have to wrap it up, but um is so often I, I have this debate with clients, it's like they say, well social media, you know, our social media presence is really about communications and it's about fundraising. Mm-hmm. And um for me, it's about programs. It's about mm-hmm. mobilizing it is it, it is the tool in my mind like the premier tool to to really grab people out of the stands and take them on the field in real and profound ways um a friend of mine Rashad Robinson runs an organization mm-hmm, I know, called, Rashad. Yeah, he runs Color of Change which mm-hmm. is just you know his organization lives online and uh and and shows su- demonstrable success and impact and it's because his work, he understands that social media is actually program work. And, um, and you know, when I see it as, uh, well, we, we need a website and that needs to be a marketing expense. I'm like, no, let's think about that differently. So, um, so I, that's just my little soapbox about social media and the ability to use it to, um, to take these folks out of the stands. Say, put down your popcorn and come on, grab a glove.
1: Can I just say one last thing on that one, though, because I, just two things. Yeah, please. One, the other thing is about public service. You know, you know, I've actually observed really good people across the aisles. You know, who want to be in public service, want to do the right thing, and right. do things for their community. And I think we sh- we don't put that up there enough. That it's so much disdain about public service and one thing is i hope that this will actually engage more people to run for office i I think there's nothing harder and more difficult and you get paid very little um so it's a difficult job plus you put your lives out there i think on the social media side i worry more about uh, and I think Vashad does a great job, so it's not about their work. But we talk only to ourselves or the people who are like us. Yes. And I personally want people to get out and meet somebody who's different, who actually disagrees. I love to talk to cab drivers. That's one of my favorite things. On the <laughs> car. And I often ask them, like, you know, depending on where they're from, what they're thinking about politics, et cetera. And I've had some of my best conversations with people who totally disagree with everything I do. Um, but, you know what, you have to... Get out there and rumble with that, because otherwise, you know, I think the polarization is going to kill us more so than the non-participation. You know, we're never going to get anything done, and I think there has to be ways that we sort of um, rebuild bridges, or rebuild the bridges back to people, you know, who are like us growing up, Joan. Like, you know, you know, working-class people are not necessarily all on the same ideology. Not at all. But but we respect them. I respect so much what they're where they came from and where I came from. And what we did, but those were all people who cared about us as a country and us as a community. And I think that's the most important piece.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, I did a podcast the day after Inauguration Day with a, a friend and client who runs an organization actually funded originally by... Um, uh, uh, I think a Rockefeller granddaughter. The organization used to be called Public Conversations Project out Oh of yeah, Cambridge. I know Public Conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. a good Yeah, and so Parisa Parsa came on and we really talked about exactly what you're talking about now, which mm-hmm. is, it was actually a um, a podcast about having difficult conversations and how to talk to people who are ideologically different and I felt like that was just like the best public service I could offer the day after Inauguration Day so um, I'm drinking your Kool-Aid, Jerry um, Well, you
1: know, I th- and just one I know I would say one last word but think <laughs> the, the people you know, the people who voted you know, for Trump uh, or the people who voted for Hillary, or or the people who voted for Mickey, right, Mickey Mouse, <laughs> they were doing a, this was a last-ditch cry for help for people because yes. they feel they're not getting, and nobody's listening to them. Yes, And they want to be listened to. And I think that's, frankly, for our body politic. We do a better job, if we would just listen to the people who are out there.
0: Agreed. Um, and um, and so I wanted to just say thank you. I, I wish we did have more time. I always this wish we fun. did. This is fun. But it's time for you to go back to your day job, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for the work that you do to build and strengthen the nonprofit sector and for sharing some of your um, your insights today. And sometime we're going to have to talk about those Jesuits up there at Rose Hill. Oh, I had, time.
1: I had so much fun with those
0: Jesuits, and Neat. I still do. Me too. <laughs> so, all right, John, All right, well, thank talk. you so much, Jerry, and thanks for listening today. Know that you as a staff or board leader will find lots of resources at my blog at joangary.com with two R's. And, well, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't plug my new book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, because nonprofits are messy. It is the only resource you'll find out there that is written for both staff and board, because I believe the best nonprofits operate like twin-engine jets. You'll get a chance to laugh at some of the mistakes I made as an executive director and a board member. Learn from them. You can learn more about the book and where you can find it at www.nonprofitsaremessy.com. Com. Take good care of yourselves. I'll talk to you next time. Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at
1: www.joangary.com.